Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Well, here we are. We're coming toward the close of 2018. What a year it's been. My goodness, so much going on. Um, We're like a week away from Christmas. I'm super excited because I love the Christmas season. And then New Year's is two weeks from now. So this is going to be the last episode of 2018. And then, honestly speaking, we'll resume on January 8th in the new year. So I just want to put that out there so you guys, you know, in case someone was bored on Christmas or New Year's and said, let me listen, where's honestly speaking? No, we're taking a hiatus (laughs) so everyone can enjoy the holidays with their families, maybe take a little time out from the craziness, the, the, the chaos chronicles, as I call them, coming from the White House, or I guess Trump will be down in Mar-a-Lago, but the, the chaos follows him no matter where he is, so, but I want everyone to enjoy the holidays, so we'll have a little bit of a hiatus, but I'll be back on January 8th. Uh, let, what else? Let's see. Oh, so like I said, um, we're like coming to the to the end of the holiday season almost, right? We're coming up to Christmas is right around the corner. Man, time is flying by. I can't believe we're like in the third week of December already. It's nuts. But also, you know, I spent over a week in Israel the first week of December. So that kind of cut into my normal holiday festivities and, and agenda, what I do during the holidays. But obviously, well worth it. If you didn't listen to last week's episode, I talk all about my amazing trip to Israel uh, in last week's episode. And um, but it, uh, it 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 delayed our decorating a bit. We got our tree before I left, but we hadn't trimmed it yet. And so when I got back from Israel, we did the whole house and I'll post pictures. I should post more, but I really like it. I like love decorating for Christmas. We turn our house into a winter wonderland full of Christmas cheer. So part of that means having the annual Christmas party. And when I lived in New Jersey, my husband and I, after we got married, we decided that we wanted to start doing Christmas parties. So it's kind of become an annual affair. And this is the first year we've had our Christmas party in the DC area because we moved back to the DC area. So I was sad that I didn't have my Jersey friends there. Some of them I'd grown up with my whole life. Like I've known since I was six years old. We went to our first day of school together. Yes, I still have friends from then. So it's pretty cool as adults for us all to hang out now. And But they're all in Jersey. So it was bittersweet not to have some of those folks there this year. But we have a whole new, I shouldn't say new, but a whole different group of friends from our life in Washington. I lived down here for 20 years prior to moving back to Jersey. And so, you know, we have uh, lots of folks here too. And uh, so it was great to be able to get everyone together and drink and be festive and merry. We sang some karaoke. It was awesome. Yes, I love karaoke. My husband bought me a karaoke machine two years ago for Christmas. And that thing is awesome. You can get any song as long as you have a smart TV. You can download stuff onto it. We have a blast. What's your go-to karaoke song? Those of you listening, send me a tweet. I want to know what your go-to karaoke song is. I have a couple. I have a couple. Since I love this in karaoke. Everywhere I travel, I try. If we were in a group and we get a karaoke opportunity, 
I will be the first one to volunteer. Like what karaoke? I'm in. Count me in. And one of my signature go-to karaoke songs is "Living on a Prayer" by Bon Jovi. Yes, "Living on a Prayer" by Bon Jovi. I'm a Jersey girl. Of course, I'm gonna rep Jersey everywhere I go. That's an awesome karaoke song. I've sang that song all over the world, from Taiwan to 4 a.m. in the red light district in Amsterdam at a at a bar called Casablanca. It's legendary. So from cruise ships everywhere, I always sing Bon Jovi. So that's my go-to, my number one go-to. What else do I sing? Uh, oh, Don't Stop Believing. Yes, your typical karaoke bar song, Journey, Don't Stop Believing. What else do I sing? Those are the two. Oh, you know what else I sing? I do Guns N' Roses sometimes too. I do Sweet Child of Mine. It's an awesome song. I'm an, I'm a child of the, you know, 70s. I I mean 80s. I love 80s hair bands. 80s was the best decade of music overall. I mean, I'm a 90s hip hop person, R&B and hip hop for 90s, but for like pop music and rocker stuff, 80s man, it's it's the best. So, anyway, so we we had some uh karaoke going on here at our Christmas party over the weekend. It was good. I sang some Pat Benatar <laughs> as well. <laughs> we had a we had a blast. Um so, so yeah, I'll post some pictures and, and definitely tweet at me what your, what your go-to karaoke song is at, uh, at Honestly Speaking um, on my Twitter feed. It's honestly underscore Tara. I'd like to hear from you, or you could do it on my personal Twitter at Tara Setmayer. Um, and I'll post some pictures from, from the house. Oh, my gosh. So not only do we have the go-to karaoke, but, of course, this time of year, you get all the awesome Christmas movies, right? And the argument comes up every year. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? And some people say yes. Some people say no. I fluctuate back and forth. When I think of Die Hard, I don't necessarily think of it as a damn Christmas movie. But then I watch and I'm like, ah, but it happens over Christmas time. And it's at a Christmas party. So maybe it is a Christmas movie. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But what is definitely a Christmas movie is Christmas Vacation with Chevy Chase, which is one of the movies I can watch a thousand times in a row and laugh just as hard every time I watch it. That is a freaking classic, just like A Christmas Story, which I will watch 20 times in a row when it run, when the marathon runs on Christmas Day or starting on Christmas Eve, because usually I'm up until God knows what time wrapping gifts because I'm a night owl. And what do I do? I wrap gifts and watch A Christmas Story. Well, this year, Christmas Vacation has been on a few times, and I always laugh at Clark Griswold and his exploits and what happens and when things start falling apart. <laughs> Just everything about that movie is hysterical. Well, I have my own kind of Clark Griswold freak out over the weekend right before the Christmas party because there were torrential rains going on here in the D.C. area. I actually live in Northern Virginia. I'm telling you, it was a fucking monsoon for like two days. Now, my husband and I take pride in our Christmas decorations inside and outside. My husband was climbing trees and shit and like all kinds of stuff to put lights places. So we did all this to make sure we had one of the nicer houses on the block. And also for the Christmas party, right? Welcoming all of our guests with our lovely light display outside. Well, during earlier that day, the Christmas party was on Saturday. Earlier that day, 
I noticed that the Christmas lights weren't turning on and I freaked out because this has never happened before. I'm like, what is going on? What is going on? Well, to make a long story short, the lights shorted out like, you know, the, the, whatever trigger switches, whatever switch happens when things get waterlogged. So you don't get electrocuted. So that, so that happened. My mom's here, she's visiting and she was like, don't worry, just, you know, flick the, flick the the breaker and it'll come back on. I was like, oh, okay. We have some inflatables too. So I'm like, oh my God, they're waterlogged. How are they going to blow up again? My mom's like, don't worry. They'll, they'll come back. I was like, okay. So I did that and the lights came back on. I was like, oh, thank God. But then I noticed there was a strand out. So I went to kind of, now it's still raining by the way. And at some time, at some point it was raining harder than other points. But when there was a little bit of a break, it was just kind of light drizzle. I went and I kind of futzed around with the lights and I wanted to see why one wasn't on and everything went down again. And I said, shit. I said, all right, well, I'm not freaking doing that again. That one strand is just going to have to be out. Fine. The Christmas party starts at six. So it's like, you know, it's always a mad dash to get everything together beforehand. We were having like, I don't know, between 40 and 50 people. So my mom's picking up the catering. My husband's in the kitchen. He decided he wanted to fry chicken. So he's in the kitchen with a freaking fryer thing that I bought him, frying chicken, uh, in addition to the food that we had catered. And then I'm the one who is outside in the pouring rain in like my velour sweatsuit pants and a tank top, futzing around trying to get these lights working again because I refused to not have our outdoor lights working when our guests arrived. It's like 5.30. <laughs> I'm supposed to be ready at six. I'm soaked to the skin, fucking around with Christmas lights like Clark Griswold in A Christmas Vacation. I pulled out lights. I went into the garage. I'm looking for extension cords, throwing shit around. I'm trying to plug this in, plug that in, jerry rig stuff up, get stuff out of the water. And oh my God, it was a whole thing. But I did it. I pulled it off with like, I don't know, it was like quarter to six. And I finally got it, everything working. And I was like, oh, thank God. Because I would have been, it would have ruined my whole night. So I run upstairs, I take a shower guests start to arrive and about mm, I don't know two hours into the party mind you it's still fucking pouring rain like torrential rains I was looking for Noah's Ark to come down the block it was ridiculous two hours in I go outside dark I'm like what the fuck again with these lights well at that point I had to just let it go most of our guests were, had already arrived, so at least somebody saw some, some of the display. But it looked like at that point, there were just pools of water so many in like many different places in our front yard. And I thought that I found where most of the plugs that were kind of getting waterlogged, but apparently there were others. So I finally just had to bite the bullet and let it go. Um, I couldn't Clark Griswold uh, jerry-rig it anymore at that point. <laughs> I just had to let it go. I took a couple extra shots and just, you know, <sighs> had to bite the bullet inside was beautiful though and all our friends had fun and we sang karaoke and it made everything better so that was uh my my little christmas vacation story um i know lots of folks had christmas parties and stuff i don't know it's just festive it's fun i like to do it it's important to have a normal life you know people in our business you think that there's no balance and for some people there isn't for me i have balance 
I watch football. My husband and I go to dinner. We go to the theater. We go to concerts. We travel. I'm very close with my mom. My mom comes and visits and stays for weeks at a time. She brings her cool dog, Samantha. We all hang out. My cat Tiki doesn't like the dog, but he gets over it. Like, you know, you got to have a, a normal life. There has to be some balance or else you'll get get an ulcer. And I refuse to let what's happening in the White House and and Donald Trump and all this chaos ruin everything. That doesn't mean I'm not going to continue to fight for what's right. Of course I will. But you got to have balance. So um, that those are my words of, of encouragement. Have balance. Appreciate the things that are close to you and your hug your loved ones. Have fun and um, balance. It's important. So with all of that, uh, I don't know what we're going to do for New Year's. Usually we go down to the, we have a house in the Florida Keys we've had for 20 years. And my husband and I oftentimes go down there. But this year, I don't think we're going to do that. We're going to do something else. Uh, we just don't know what. So it doesn't really matter as long as we're together. So we'll see. Um, let me know what you guys are doing for New Year's too. I always like to hear that. I think it's important to bring in the New Year fresh and fun and with your loved ones. So you can tweet at me. What What are your New, Year, New Year's plans? Maybe I'll get an idea what to do something different this year. So, well, with all of that, now the, with the pleasantries out of the way. What's been going on in the news? Well, we have a acting chief of staff. <laughs> Donald Trump was going down the list. People were like, screw you. I'm not taking that job. Who would want to take the job as chief of staff? I talked about this last week. Once we found out John Kelly was out of there, the list was 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 getting thin. Because it's an impossible job. Nobody wants it. It's a shitty. It used to be one of the most powerful jobs in Washington. The pinnacle of a political career to be the White House chief of staff. Not in this administration. <laughs> and Trump was tweeting out about, oh, we've got all these people lined up. They All these people want the job. No, they didn't. And Chris Christie said, screw you. Nope, I'm not doing it. Um, Mark Meadows said, nah, I'll stay in Congress. Never mind. Um, there were a bunch of folks that were just kind of saying, mm -mm. and then Mick Mulvaney comes along. Does that name sound familiar? Well, it should, because he already holds two jobs in this administration. Not one, but two. He is the director of the Office of Management and Budget, which is basically like the budgetary arm of the White House. They, they numbers crunch. A very nerdy position. Um, and he's also the chairman of the Com Consumer Protection Agency. I mean, the director of that, because they never replaced that position. Hello, the guy has two jobs, major jobs. Now he's going to be the acting chief of staff. <laughs> okay. Trump was tweeting about how so many people wanted the job. Okay, so many people wanted it. You had to pick someone that already had two. <laughs> and is acting also, by the way. He wouldn't take Nick Ayers, the vice president's chief of staff, who decided, hey, look, I'll go in an acting capacity, but I'm going back to Georgia. And Trump said no to that initially. So how come it's okay for Mick Mulvaney to take it in an acting position? Yeah, maybe because nobody else wanted the damn job ridiculous so there's that that i thought was amusing what else is happening oh well 
uh, oh, well, I should have said this earlier on, but um, we have I have two great guests today on the podcast. Um, David Korn, who is the author of a book called Russian Roulette. And it's all about uh, he wrote co-wrote the book with Michael Isakoff, another um, investigative journalist very well known here in D.C., and they co-wrote this book called Russian Roulette, basically outlining all of Trump's relationships with Russia and how Putin has been laying the foundation to infiltrate this country and disrupt things for quite some time. So David Korn joins me in a little bit, and then my friend Van Jones, my friend and colleague over at CNN, uh, he joins me to talk about criminal justice reform, because um, there's actually some major legislation that is about to get a vote, finally. Actually, it's a glimmer of, of some hope of getting something done of substance with this, this administration and on a bipartisan basis. And that's the First Step Act. And you've probably heard that criminal justice reform has been a, a bipartisan issue for a couple of years now, but it looks like we're actually going to get something passed so Van is joining me to talk about that effort, and um, hopefully this week that will be the first step for the First Step Act to get it signed. Uh, Van Jones calls it hashtag Christmas miracle of getting this bill passed before uh, the new Congress comes in. So, so those two guests are coming up, one talking about Russia, the other talking about criminal justice, both great interviews. But before I get to that, let me talk a little bit about um, what's happening with this border wall situation. You know, I watched Sunday shows, even after my Christmas party, I still mustered up the strength to watch some of the Sunday shows over the weekend. And I gotta tell you, Stephen Miller scares the shit out of me. Am I the only one who's creeped out by this guy? This guy is, he's an angry, very weaselly, scary guy to me because anyone who's that angry and just seems so internally conflicted <laughs> with the kind of power and access he has makes them dangerous to my in my opinion and he's very influential on immigration policy in this administration now I know many of my listeners many of you guys appreciate me because I am a never Trumper and I criticize the Trump administration and I do on a lot of things but there are some things that I do agree with one of them is being tough on the border I am a border hawk I worked on illegal immigration and border security when I worked in Capitol Hill I know the issue very well there's a lot of nuances it's more than just what you see in the news all the time a lot of times it's presented only from one perspective you don't get the balance on that. And you know, having experience working on this issue, being at the border, working with Border Patrol, being in Southern California, it really changed my perspective on all of this. It's multifaceted. It's not an easy issue. It's very complicated. But some of the tougher stances and some of the policies like ending catch and release and things like that, I agree with what this administration is doing doesn't mean that it's worth having Donald Trump there I think a sane Republican would have done similar made similar policy changes but what happens is they do a couple good things and then they go and they fuck it up and do stuff like you know the family separation crap and then you create and then it takes away from any other 
potentially good things that they're doing, like more interior enforcement, cracking down on, on employers, deporting criminals, stuff like that. Yeah. No, instead, we end up have, seeing stories for weeks about thousands of kids being separated from their parents and the, and the government not doing a good job of reuniting them and screwing that whole thing up. And then it becomes about kids in cages. Unnecessary. Unnecessary. So then back to Stephen Miller. He's behind a lot of this. He's just behind a lot of the rigidity of this and the heartlessness. I mean, you need to have some compassion. There's human beings involved here. Not everybody's a drug smuggler, gangbanger, murderer coming across the border. Are there a lot of those? Yes. But they're not all that. And I have some compassion for people that are trying to make it here for a better life. You need to do it the right way, though. I don't think people should be flooding across the border like we saw with this caravan. I don't know whose idea that was. That's not the way to do it. It's not. But we need to start making investments in Central America to help these folks and their governments crack down on what's going on in their own countries so they don't have to flee here. That's really the way we need to do this and come up with an orderly system, a guest worker program, things like that. But I digress. So Stephen Miller was on the Sunday shows acting hysterically again. This guy sounds like a freaking brown shirt every time he opens his mouth. Like I'm waiting for him to come through with, you know, with stormtrooper boots on. Like this guy, every time he opens his mouth and it's counterproductive, it really is. Because it takes away from the people who are working hard on the inside to come up with good, effective policy to try to change things for the better. That gets overshadowed because you have an asshole like Stephen Miller on on Sunday shows acting like that. Completely at just just, you know, yelling at people and raising his voice and the president will absolutely shut down the government if he doesn't get his money for his wall. I mean, do you remember a couple of months ago? He maybe it was last year where he said the president will not be questioned. Yeah, I think it was in the beginning of the administration. This president will not be questioned. What? He's not the freaking dictator. I mean, the president will not be questioned. Jeez, with this guy. So I, I and then there was a whole controversy over Stephen Miller's hair. <laughs> if you ever see him, just Google it. You know, he's losing his hair and then all of a sudden hair showed back up again. And, it, you know, kind of like Marco Rubio. Clearly, he got some kind of hair work done, but his doesn't wasn't as as obvious. Stephen Miller, I don't know what they sprayed on his head or what that is, but it's awful. The jokes are endless on social media, but I digress. I'm just being petty with that, but it was kind of funny. Speaking of funny, Saturday Night Live, cold open, hilarious again. It was, you know, <laughs> what if Trump hadn't become president and it's a mock Christmas party? Oh my goodness. Google that too. Very funny stuff. Guest appearances by lots of characters from Mueller to Kellyanne. It's, it's pretty funny in character, of course. Anyway, so I just want to talk a little bit about this border fence and what's going on here with this. So Donald Trump is threatening to allow government funding to run out on the 21st. If he doesn't get $5 billion for the border wall. Yes, the border wall that Mexico was supposed to pay for. What happened to that? Well, we all knew that was a bunch of bullshit. Okay, it was a bunch of campaign bullshit to get people riled up. Mexico was never paying for the wall. Vincente Fox, former president of Mexico, was like, we're never paying for the fucking wall. That's a quote. And we knew that was a ruse. 
But it was a great campaign slogan. It was simple. People understood it. It became a rallying cry. Brilliant campaign tactic. Bullshit, but a good campaign tactic. So here we are now. Republicans had control of both houses of Congress up until the election in November. So why the hell couldn't they get border funding for the wall passed by then? Well, you need 60 votes in the Senate. So you couldn't get a couple Democrats to do it in the Senate. You could have got it passed and could have gotten it passed in the House. Senate's always a problem. Because you need 60, vo- 60 votes to avoid a filibuster. Well, there was a deal on the table last year. Well, in the beginning of this year, almost a year ago, where Democrats were willing to give Trump $20 billion, 20 for the wall in exchange for the do- legalizing DACA recipients. Those are the, the kids who were brought here, grew up here, and the Obama administration gave them like temporary protection from deportation because they were brought by their parents. It wasn't their fault. Now they're like members of the society going to college. Some are working and, but they don't have legal status. So DACA, the deferred action for childhood arrivals was implemented. Now it was taken to court and there were a bunch of court cases. And last year at the time, those cases were still pending. We've gotten some decisions on them. So there's really not as much leverage now, but because DACA is going to come to an end. Now, I didn't agree with the Obama administration implementing this through executive order. It should have gone through Congress. And the courts agreed at this point. So now, you know, DACA is, they're going to have to do something. There needs to be a legislative fix for these folks so they can stay. However you feel about that. Some are screaming it's amnesty. It is an amnesty of some sort. But what are you going to do with them at this point? This is the only country they know. I mean, it, it bothers me. I don't like to reward people for bad behavior and for people coming here like this illegally. But we're not going to deport 700,000 people. It's not going to happen. And we need to do something about that. Maybe have some fines or penalties or something along the way. But once we do this, then we need to make sure that we don't have another influx of people coming here illegally so you don't have to do it again. We already learned this lesson when Reagan did the big amnesty. And then it was only 3 million people. Now we're looking at like 15 to 20 million overall. But I'm just talking about DACA right now, though. Not all the illegals. Just the DACA. Well, there was a deal on the table with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer representing the Democrats. Last year, they said, all right, we'll give you your 20 billion. Some There were some numbers up to 25 billion for the damn wall. We'll swallow that. We'll take the wall if you give us DACA. And Trump has expressed that he that he wants to do something about DACA. So it seemed like this is a good deal, right? He's supposed to be a deal maker. Well, he decided to move the goalposts and raised the stakes of what he wanted, added some poison pills in there, and the deal fell apart. So that tells me that Donald Trump doesn't really want to solve this issue. He doesn't. He needs it as a foil. Despite the fact that millions of people voted for Donald Trump strictly off of his position on immigration. Whether it was practical or not, whether it was motivated by xenophobia or not, people were motivated by it because it is out of control in a lot of places. I don't agree with their tactics. Like I said, some policies I do agree with. I just don't agree with the way in which they're implementing them. However, this whole thing about a border wall is more symbolic than substantive. Do we need a wall and fencing at some places? We have a 2,000, almost 2,000 mile border with Mexico. A wall is impractical for 2,000 miles. 
There's some terrain where you don't need a wall. There's some terrain where you do need a wall. We have about 700 miles of wall that's already been built as a result of the Secure Fence Act back in like 2006 or 7. I was working in Congress at the time. So they were get, they were able to get at least 700 miles built of some kind of barrier, whether it's pedestrian, vehicle, some kind of physical barrier. Now there's other areas that still need it, but you had a lot. So up until about 2010, there was a lot of wall construction, fencing, whatever. During the Obama administration, 2010, that pretty much came to a halt for whatever reason. So in places like San Isidro in Southern California, it's near San Diego. They have uh, another section in New Mexico, another major section in Texas that are now being replaced because they're in disrepair. So they're being replaced with this like bollard fencing wall thing, which basically means it has like um, those kind of slats so you can see through it. There's like some spaces. Border Patrol said they like that as opposed to a wall where you can't see what's on the other side because they need to know what's happening, who's approaching, what's going on. So that's why they they have these bollard walls. They're like 18 to 30 feet, depending on where they are. And but this was has nothing to do with really what Trump was asking for. This stuff was kind of already in place. So that's why Ann Coulter and people like her are freaking out and saying, you know, there hasn't been one foot of Trump's border wall built and he's reneged on his promise well she's not wrong she's wrong about a lot of other stuff I can't stand her but she's right about that it was a ruse Trump doesn't actually want this solved I'm telling you because he could have if he was such a great deal maker he had a deal on the table last year and and blew it because he doesn't want to solve this problem he likes having it as a foil mark my words the best chance they had of getting this passed was when both Republicans um, controlled both houses and they didn't do it. So the wall is more symbolic. Plus, the majority of people who come to this country illegally overstay their visas anyway. That's a little tidbit that Trump and his people don't like to emphasize because then they can't vilify brown people coming from Central America. Let's just be honest. Right. They want the when you see the commercials, when they're fear mongering people, you don't see. Um, people from Europe coming through JFK overstaying their visas. No, they show you these dramatic videos of people bum rushing, poor people bum rushing the, the southern border or the border with Mexico and, and Guatemala symbolizing, oh, these are the people, you don't want them coming over here. These are people with lots of problems, right, Trump says. Well, yeah, that's true, partially, but the majority of illegals in this country are be- are from visa overstays. They overstay visas. So there's other policies that could better address what's going on if you really want to solve the problem, like E-Verify. E-Verify should be mandatory for all businesses. This way, there is a database where everyone has to verify that the person they're hiring is a citizen of the United States or a legal resident and has a permit to work. Seems simple to me. But there's a motivation. You know, some people, they, they want the cheap labor. They don't want it. Well, if you don't have interior enforcement and you don't have uh, penalties for these employers who continue to hire illegal immigrants, they're going to keep doing it. Bottom line. So we've run into that. That's where that's the, you know, kind of the Republican side where people like they like the cheap labor and then the Democrat side, they want voters. So there's fault on both sides of why this problem hasn't been solved. 
But E-Verify would be is something that we should be focusing on getting that implemented everywhere. That would cut down on a lot of the because work, the economic magnets are what's drawing people here for the most part. You get rid of those. You have a certain amount of attrition combined with more border security. And that doesn't necessarily mean a fence. Even the even Brandon Judd, who I had on the program two weeks ago, he's the head of the Border Patrol Union. He testified in front of Congress. He said, we don't need a we don't need a fence on 2000 miles. No, we just need it in certain areas where it's strategically um, important, where it makes sense. Yes, that's right. So E-Verify, what else? Interior enforcement, like I said, find these companies who keep hiring illegal immigrant workers because they're taking jobs away from others. There are jobs that, that Americans, quote, won't do. That's because they pay low wages. So when you have people who are willing to come and do this work for lower wages, it bids down wages for everybody else. That's no good. It also hurts African-Americans and teenagers who do these entry-level jobs. Oftentimes, they get good skills. They work their way up. You know, I waited tables when I was, you know, when I was in high school. I worked a little cash register at, a, at our local our local um, burger joint called the Fireplace in Paramus, New Jersey. It's been around since the 50s. One of my favorite places in the whole world. Shout out to the Fireplace in Paramus. You know, you, you work your way up. Those jobs aren't meant to be, raise a family on. Some people try to, but that's not what they're supposed to do. Or, you know, you wash dishes or you bust tables or, um, you know, clean bathrooms. Like, no, nobody wants to do that. But it's, it's you, you, you know, you learn the lesson of hard work. But if you have people who are willing to come in and do that for $5 an hour, well, what are you going to do? You're going to pay the people $5 an hour, just basic capitalism. You minimize labor costs to maximize profits, right? So we've got to do something about the incentive here um, and, and have more enforcement with the employers who hire people like this. That will help. And get a functioning guest worker program for the agriculture industry that needs people to pick crops. Crops are rotting because they don't have enough people to, to pick crops because of Trump's immigration policy and what's been going on. That's, that's no good either. We have a guest worker program, but it's not large enough. So let's reform that. I mean, it's frustrating to watch this, but, you know, there's been an increase in border apprehensions. In 2017, there were 300, roughly 1,000, um, 303,000 border apprehensions. 2018 is up to 396,000. So does that, you know, there's an increase. So we've got to do something. The, the status quo can't remain. But shutting down the government's not the answer either. So Trump wants to, you know, he's going to jet off to Mar-a-Lago on Saturday with a throwing a temper tantrum if he doesn't get his $5 billion. So that means that Hundreds of thousands of federal workers are furloughed in the, during the holidays. And some, like my husband, who's federal law enforcement, will have to go to work and not get paid until they get this resolved. Usually you do get back pay, but it doesn't matter. It could be, depending on how long it lasts, it could be weeks. They could be delayed for the paychecks. Many people can't survive without their pay. They live paycheck to paycheck. So this is unnecessary. It's just another example of Trump's inability to govern because these shutdowns have become just kabuki theater, They're just political kabuki theater. And Trump gave away any leverage to blame Democrats for it 
when he sat in that Oval Office meeting, that really awkward Oval Office meeting with with him, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer last week and said, yeah, I'll own it. Damn right. I'll, I'll shut down the government. I don't care if it's for border security. So a lot of them, a lot of Republicans were like, oh, this guy is killing us. He's taking away any of our political leverage here on this. Yeah. So no one likes shuts da- shutdowns. Mitch McConnell's hoping for a, quote, Christmas miracle. Um, so that doesn't happen. They can reach some kind of an agreement. We'll see. But it's just asinine to me to shut the government down. Democrats are offering, I think, $1.3 or $1.6 billion for some kind of wall stuff. Trump's crying he wants $5 billion. Well, he had a chance at $20 billion last year, so he's full of shit. So that's something that's ongoing. Friday the 21st is the deadline. We'll see what happens. I mean, the world doesn't come to an end. I mean, you, most average Americans don't have any, don't feel the impact of a government shutdown. But the federal workers do. And if you want to go to a national park, you plan on doing that over your Christmas vacation, that can't happen. So there's some disruption things. But it's just not necessary. It really isn't. So hopefully that doesn't happen. But I wanted to be clear about what's actually happening. Or, you know, with Trump and this border wall bullshit, um, because that's really what it is. And the parts that are being built, that's because it was appropriated and approved two administrations ago. It has nothing to do with what Trump has done. Those are repairs and replacements of sections that were already in place before Trump. Just an FYI. Let's talk a little bit about Russia and Michael Cohen. Um... It's a lot. It really is. There's a lot going on, but the basics and um, this is kind of a lead up into Michael Cohen. Um, I mean, a lead up to my interview with David Korn, who's going to talk a little bit more about it. But the bottom line is Michael Cohen's sentencing was very revealing. And it showed us that Trump is under investig that that Trump is under investigation more than just Mueller and the collusion issue. You have the Southern District of New York also, who is looking into the inauguration, the inaugural committee, where the rules are a little looser with how much money you can donate to that, as opposed to a campaign where there's limits for individuals. Inaugural committees, they are really uh, ripe territory for, for a lot of illicit shit. And it looks like they now, the inauguration committee is in the crosshairs of the Southern District of New York, which could be a problem for Trump. So is the Trump organization, his business. Remember, that was supposed to be a red line, but it's not Mueller looking into that. It's the Southern District of New York. Trump can't do anything about that. I mean, he could, but not really. He can't fire everybody. And mind you, the person who runs the Southern District of New York, that U.S. attorney, is a Trump appointee. Just an FYI. And so now we have the Trump Foundation, the charity, that's under investigation. The Trump Inaugural Committee, that's under investigation. I tweeted about this a little bit. Don't be surprised if you start hearing a bunch of Russian names behind some of the money that they're looking into where it went, how it was spent, who spent it. For the inauguration, I'll give you two examples. There's a guy named Sam Patton who pleaded guilty already 
of basically seeking out a straw donor to get to give inauguration tickets to an, a Ukrainian oligarch because foreign money cannot be taken. You cannot, you know, money that comes from people who are not American citizens or foreign entities, you're not allowed to give money. So this guy, Sam Patton, he took money from some, tried to find somebody else that would, a U.S. citizen who would donate this $50,000 and then be the straw donor and pass the tickets over to this Ukrainian oligarch. That's just one example. God knows how much more illicit shit like that went on during this inauguration. Rick Gates, that name may sound familiar. He was Paul Manafort's right-hand guy. He was Paul Manafort's in business. He's already pled guilty to a bunch of financial crimes and has been cooperating with Mueller. And he also was the deputy chairman of the inaugural inauguration. I can't say hard word, right? Inaugural, it's a mouthful. Of the inauguration committee. So he has information, I'm sure he's cooperating, chatting with Mueller about this and with the Southern District of New York, because they are working hand in hand, about who was donating what and when and how that money was spent. So you've got those two. And just a little bit of other background info. Michael Cohen, who's had his hands in all kinds of stuff, right? As Trump's fixer and attorney for over a decade, between, you know, between the facilitating the money with the payoff, the hush money for the, the porn stars and the Playboy Playmates and God knows who else, the stuff with the National Enquirer that came out during the sentencing memo last week, which is really significant because David Pecker, who runs American Media Institute, God knows what else he has in that quote vault that he held on Trump information, that he held Trump information in, whether it's real or perceived, he knows a lot. So Michael Cohen it came out that he received $500,000 from this company, a consulting fee. We don't really know if he consulted anything or what that was for. But that company is run by the cousin of a Russian oligarch named Victor Vexelberg. Victor Vexelberg is worth $13 billion. He has a lot of different companies. He has a subsidiary in the U.S. run by his cousin and Victor Vexelberg was bragging to business associates that he had an in with the new administration. Victor Vexelberg was also sanctioned by the administration as part of retaliation against Russia. So this guy's bad news. But guess where he was? He was at the inauguration as a guest of his cousin, who was an American, Russian-American, who donated $250,000 to the inauguration committee. This stinks to high heavens. So don't be surprised if we start to hear more about Russian influence through money with the inaugural committee. This is why Michael Cohen and his sentencing has been a triple threat to the president and why he's been rage tweeting nonsense and hysterically for the last week. I mean, he called Michael Cohen a rat in a tweet, completely inappropriate. What are we in a Godfather movie? What is this? Goodfellas? You're the president of the United States. And to be honest, if you're a rat, that means that you actually were giving up information that was valuable. So maybe you want to use a different term there, Mr. President. But he's worried. It's clear. Just look at his behavior. He went on to disparage the FBI, calling, saying that they had an illegal search into Cohen's office and all that. That is not true. That is absolutely not true. Michael Cohen himself said 
that the agents were respectful. They were not stormtroopers coming in. He was there. He would know. But besides that, do you know how high the bar of proof has to be for a judge to sign off on a search warrant for a lawyer? Really high. So these were legally sanctioned search warrants signed off by a judge. And they went so far as to appoint a special master to oversee the information that the agents collected to make sure that it didn't violate attorney-client privilege. Okay, that is, that's what happened. Not the bullshit that Donald Trump is tweeting out to gullible people who don't know the difference. He's bullshitting, he's lying about all of this and insulting our federal officers and trying to chip away and undermine inst- trusted institutions. This is part of the danger of this administration. And Republicans are sitting there as fucking cowards as usual with their tails between the legs, their legs not saying anything. A couple here and there, even Andrew, Andy McCarthy, who has been pretty favorable to the president on a lot of legal matters, even he's come out and, and actually criticized the president on some of the stuff. Like they're trying to minimize the campaign finance violations too. Rudy Giuliani trying to say that the, you know, the payoffs and all that weren't campaign finance violations. Trump's trying to push that lie too. That's bullshit also. Kellyanne Conway's husband has been out there tweeting up a storm again, and I love it. He's like the greatest troll ever of his own wife, (laughs) but of, of Trump talking about the legal matters and pointing out the legal arguments against what Trump is trying to claim. It's all BS. Nobody believes Donald Trump that he didn't direct Michael Cohen to do what he did. Please. We're supposed to believe Donald Trump, who's a proven liar on a daily basis, over federal prosecutors and court, actual court documents. Okay. So it's been a week. It's been a week. And there's still more to come. Now we know that Donald Trump has multiple investi- investigations surrounding him in every aspect of his life. Giuliani let it slip. That uh, looks like the they're investigating his business. It, Donald Trump's business is back to like the 80s, 1982, 83. Hmm, that's interesting. That could pose a significant problem for Donald Trump. I've always said, follow the money. Follow the money. Michael Flynn gets sentenced this week. He probably won't get any jail time. But uh, it's still a saga. His relationship, his business partners with doing stuff with Turkey and it's all just so, so swampy. It really is. For a candidate in administration to claim he's going to drain the swamp, this is swampier than anything I've seen in a very long time. This makes the Clintons look like Disney World. Yeah, I said it. Not giving them a pass, but I'm just saying. You got to be kidding me. All you people that claim, bitch and complain about how corrupt the Clintons were, you need to remove the plank from your own eye first. Because this guy... Donald Trump and his minions and all the shit that's going on around here. The cabinet secretaries and everything else. Zinke is out, the interior secretary. He's another one. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to get into him. He needed to go. I I appreciate that he served our country as a Navy SEAL, but he was a terrible interior secretary and corrupt as hell. Doing things very unethically, in my opinion. And um, that's why he's leaving, because he's under investigation also. Anyway, so I guess this would be a good time now more than ever to talk a little bit more about what's going on with Russia and and Trump's connection there. So I'm pleased to introduce David Korn, author of the book Russian Roulette, 
and David's here to join me to talk a little bit more about what's happening. Well, given everything that's going on, I couldn't think of a more appropriate person to have on, honestly speaking, with Tara this week than David Korn, who is the author of the book Russian Roulette. He knows a thing or two about the Trump connection to Russia, and um, he's here to talk about it. Welcome, David. Good to be with you. Thank you. So uh, a lot has happened over the last week and a half or so. And uh, for someone like you who has been investigating the Russian connection with the Trump world, um, I don't think you were probably shocked that some of this information has come out. What has stood out to you as the most significant um, development with the Cohen, Manafort, Flynn trifecta of sentencing memos? The most important thing was in the Michael Cohen case. The focus has been on the illegal payments he made, the hush money payments, to Stormy Daniels, the porn star, and Karen McDougal, the former, former Playboy model, to get them to shut up about their alleged affairs with Trump before the campaign. And, of course, he pled guilty to this, uh, noting it was an illegal campaign contribution, and said, and prosecutors backed him up on this, that he had been directed by Donald Trump to commit this crime. And that's gotten a lot of attention that the president of the United States was involved in a conspiracy mm-hmm. to commit a crime, to violate, violate federal law. And that is highly significant and something that I expect you know, there to be more um, investigation of, particularly from House Democrats when they take control of various oversight committees um, in Congress. But you know, the most important thing in terms of the Russia story that came out also was part of the Michael Cohn um, guilty plea. That is when he pled guilty to lying to Congress. It was what he lied to Congress about. Uh, During the 2016 campaign, Donald Trump had a secret deal in Russia to develop a Trump Tower that would have, according to these recent filings, gotten him hundreds of millions of dollars in profit. Hundreds of mm-hmm. millions of dollars. This is like a gigantic deal. And during that time, while he, was, he did this while he was campaigning and not telling the public that he was working to develop a deal in Moscow that obviously could not go forward if uh, Putin said no yet to it. Right. right. He, That's you know, right. Not, not that Putin has to approve every deal in, in Moscow, but a major deal, Putin doesn't like the person involved, it's not going to happen. That's right. So he's running for president, Trump is, he's saying all these positive things about Putin, and he's never telling the public that he's compromised, that he can't talk negatively about Putin because it will, it will you know, it will blow up this deal that he has. So we knew those basics, not during the campaign, but a year ago it came out after Trump had been elected that he had basically misled voters by not talking about this and pursuing this deal um, in Moscow. But those stories, based on Michael Cohn and Trump's own account, was that the deal, the talk of the deal ended in early 2016, before the Republican primaries had taken off, and that Cohn had made a, a lazy effort to contact Putin's office about it, but nothing had happened. He never, he never reached anyone there. Right. Well, what we learn now, this is what we now, that's what we knew before Michael Cohn's plea. He pled guilty to lying to Congress because that story was not true. 
It was not too true on two significant accounts. And that is that the deal, that the talks with Russians went on through June 2016, even to the point when Trump was the presumptive Republican nominee. And um, we don't know, you know. And it could have been longer now, right? Because didn't Rudy Giuliani on the over the weekend? Well, that was going to say, yeah. Make a slip? Get, yeah. <laughs> this weekend, Rudy Giuliani said, well, Trump. You know, was working the deal until November 2016, right? Which is even crazier, and we don't know what that means and whether he, you know, is you know saying something true or not. But it just you know digs a deeper hole for Trump. But the other thing that came out in the plea, um, uh, Michael Cohen's guilty plea, was that he did have a conversation with Putin's office. He sent an email to Putin's office, and he had said that there was no conversation. We never heard back. And Putin's office, uh, Dmitry Peskov, Putin's top aide, had said publicly, no, we never talked to Cohen or anyone else about this project. Well, he, Peskov was lying, as was Michael Cohen, because the, plea, guilty, the guilty plea agreement points out, prosecutors confirmed this, that Cohen had a long conversation with one of Peskov's aides in Putin's own office about the deal and whether they could help with financing and getting a a, a location for the tower. So So the bottom line is, right, the bottom line here, though, is that there was significant conversation and contacts between Michael Cohen and uh, Putin's guy about this potential Trump Tower Moscow deal well into the campaign. And Trump tried to deny that he didn't have any business interests in Russia, which was just a flat out lie to the American people. And even you point yeah, out. And we'll, right. And even you point out as far back as 2013 that Trump started already publicly talking about how he wanted to be Putin's best friend and what a great leader Putin was. Yeah. And that was when he was bringing the Miss Universe pageant there. So this had been going on, laying the foundation for this kissing of Putin's ass had been going on for years. So the timeline is important here for people to understand. Yeah, no, it, it, it's been going on for years. Trump had tried many times to get a Trump Tower. So this was something that was actually very important to him. And maybe he even thought he could leverage his campaign if he believed he wasn't going to actually win. Right, and he said as that. a way to get closer yeah, get get closer to this deal. And meanwhile, he's signaling to Putin that I want to be your friend. I want to do business with you. I want your help. And we're going to, you know, and, and, and this is all being done on the download, you know, uh, on the, on the, just, you know, right. really quietly. It's not being talked about publicly. So here he is, you know, in essence, having a secret with Putin while he's campaigning for president. And, and while you know, the Russians. And, and lying about it. Right. And then with the significance the Russians, of that is while the Russians were you know, interfering in the election. The, yes, this is all happening while this attack is underway. And then, of course, the attack, you know, we, 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 we understand that, they're, that the Russians are intervening in the election. And Trump says, no, not happening, not happening. And I have nothing to do with Russia. And I stayed away from Russia. So, I mean, it's just it, it, it does get close to a description of collusion, if not collusion on the attack on the Democrats, collusion in a business deal. Um, it is highly, highly significant. It is, I think, the most important, the largest political conflict of interest in modern U.S. history, modern U.S. political history yep. and campaign history. I can't think of any other candidate who had such a conflict of interest while they were campaigning. And in and of itself, 
this should be a big scandal. This should blow everything out of the water. It should lead to congressional hearings. People should just be outraged about this. And yet it is only one component of you know, a large, unwieldy, confusing scandal that people often lose sight of the main essential issues. And I think this does illuminate one of the main themes here, which is that Donald Trump betrayed America. He did not tell the voters the truth about his connections with Putin. He showed Putin that he wanted to work with him while Putin was attacking America. And he has yet to fess up and acknowledge any of this. And still continues to deny and to double down, triple down on the fact that the Russia investigation is a witch hunt. He attacks Mueller. He's now attacking the FBI using, you know, mafia terminology, calling Michael Cohen a rat. I mean, the president's behavior in and of itself is not the behavior of someone who's completely innocent. It's the behavior of someone who's backed up into a corner and knows that the walls are caving in. Because as of right now, Trump is under investigation on multiple fronts. His campaign, the inauguration committee, his business, his charity. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on. And his behavior really demonstrates that. I mean, he's been unhinged on, on Twitter lately. I want to ask I want to ask I you a quick mean, question, just really quick, because no. this is something that I know you talked about in your book. Um, and, and it's the Christopher Steele dossier. You were one of the first people to review the Christopher Steele. This is the dodgy dossier that Hannity has been basing his show on for the last year and a half, trying to claim that it's a fake document. But you were one of the first people to have access to this information and interaction with Christopher Steele, even during the campaign. How much of that dossier, now that you look at it, has either been proven or is somewhat true? And what role did Michael Cohen play in this, particularly with the thing about him going to Prague? That's still something that's up in the air. Yeah, yeah uh, I get this question a lot. And the, the Steele dossier is full of a lot of details, and which have, many of which have not been confirmed or just proven. You know, to me, the, the important thing is that he got a lot of the big picture items, even if he didn't have all the details correct. And again, this was not a piece of journalism. This was, you know, private reports that he right. sent back to an employer. Raw lead. So, you know, so I don't think you can get on his case for, you know, putting things in. This is what someone says, but not, you know, without, but if it's not for public consumption, then you can, it's fair to, you know, report that to people. This is what I'm looking at. But in any event, um, you know, the, the big, you know, some of the big themes that he identified in that very first memo in June 2016 have more or less been proven to be true. He mm-hmm. talked about how there was a Russian plan to cultivate and co-op Trump, um, and that part of it involved dangling business deals in front of him. And it looks as if that's exactly what happened in the case of the Trump Tower deal, um, that it was brought to a representative of, of, of Trump, and they kind of you know, got him to think, favorably of Russia uh, while he was campaigning. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the memo talks about how there was, you know, contact between the Trump campaign and Russians. And we do know about the Trump Tower meeting in which um, a Russian emissary came to Trump Tower, met with Donald Trump Jr., Paul Manafort, and Jared Kushner. They thought they were going to get dirt from her on Hillary Clinton. Turns out, according to their account, you know, may or may not be fully accurate, that they did not get anything useful from her. But the important thing was they were told that this meeting was, was coming out of a 
secret Kremlin plot to help Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And by taking the meeting, they signaled to the Kremlin, you know, we're willing to have you intervene in the election or engage in dirty tricks if it, you know, to help Donald Trump. And we're not going to say boo about that. So I think the memo indicates that there was some interaction between the um, campaign and Russians that described it as an exchange of information, an information flow. Well, that's kind of what happened to a large degree. You know, the memo talks infamously about a video with capturing Donald Trump during some, you know, perverted things with prostitutes, you know, and there's no evidence at all to confirm any of that. That could just be gossip that passed around Moscow and some certain circles. And, you know, there are other things throughout the memos, you know, 30 pages. A lot of it's about internal Russian deliberations about their attack in the United States. That's really, really interesting to read. It may or may not be true, but about how they were internal debate about how far they should go. Um, and there's no, you know, telling whether that material is accurate or uh, or not. Maybe just high level gossip from from Kremlin circles. So I think overall, there, you know, you know, Steele is onto something. You mentioned about my, you know, it talks about Michael Cohen having a meeting in Prague to coordinate with the Russians, and there's no evidence yet to back that up. Michael Cohen told me, has told the world that that's he was never in Prague at that period of time. And if he's cooperating with Mueller, I would assume that Mueller knows that. Um, and if he testified before Congress, and when he when he did testify or, or talk to uh, members of Congress and committees of Congress behind closed doors, I'm sure he was asked this, and I'm sure he issued the same denial. Mm-hmm. So he was charged with lying to Congress. So uh, my my guess is if Mueller had evidence that this meeting really happened, and Cohn had li- lied to Congress about it. He would be charged with that too. Right. So, um, you know, so there's no evidence yet whether Cohn had such a meeting. Um, but, you know, we'll, you know he's going to probably testify publicly at some point in time, and I'm sure he'll be asked about this. Well, the thing about that with Michael Cohen, and, and you've written about this before, back in July, you called Michael Cohen the triple threat to Trump because he knows so much about the business deals, the shady business deals, and the affairs, and then the ties to Russia. And then, of course, his childhood friend, Felix Sater, who is another uh, shady character with ties to Russian mafia and everything else. And it looks as though the, um, the Southern District of New York investigation is even going back into Trump's business ties. I think Rudy Giuliani let that slip too, back in the 1980s. Um, do you yeah. see, I mean, I'm sure in the course of your research for your book, Russian Roulette, that you detailed and came across a lot of Trump's um, dealings with Russian mafia and, um, uh, you know, Russian money and Cyprus and things like that. Um, yeah. Could you just talk a little bit? I know we only have a couple minutes left. Just talk yeah. a little bit because a lot of people don't think that this is really that significant. It gets caught up in a lot of the noise of everything every day. But I want my listeners to really understand how corrupt Donald Trump is and how in bed with the Russians he really is. That's gone back way before just this election. Well, there's a lot that's very foggy about some of Trump's business ties because he won't release his taxes and the financial disclosure forms that he filled out as a candidate are, you know, are by definition vague. Um, but we do know that through the years he's had a variety of organized crime connections, um, 
some with you know the New York City mob, some that he's, he's even bragged about at times, mm-hmm. and other times he's in the night he's had them. So um, that was something that I wrote about a lot during the before the election, and it was an, an idea that didn't get a lot of media coverage. But there is a lot of that. I think that you know the, the danger to Trump at the moment is really that the Southern District of New York got everything that was in Michael Cohn's office. Michael Cohn has been a fixer and lawyer for Trump for about a dozen years. And they were going to, you know, we're already starting to see investigative fruit uh, being produced in terms of you know, other people who might uh, be indicted or might be looked at. We see um, the chief financial officer of the Trump organization, you know, apparently cooperating with the Southern District of New York. So I think in a lot of ways, it really depends on to what degree the Southern District is motivated to look at the variety of Trump's business operations prior to, you know, to him becoming president, things that may involve Russia, may not involve Russia. There's a very mysterious loan or a series of loans that he's gotten from Deutsche Bank, Mm -hmm. uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. We don't really understand a lot about these loans. Deutsche Bank lent money to him when nobody else would. Deutsche Bank now, you know, has been involved with with, with a Russian uh, money laundering scheme. I'm not saying that's connected to this loan, mm-hmm. but this loan does come out of the side of the bank, which is funded by sovereign wealth funds. Those are funds, you know, from run by very wealthy governments like in the Middle East and high wealth individuals. And the question would be, well, who are the source? Who are the real sources of these these funding? And is there a Russian connection, a Chinese connection, or anything else that might be worth knowing? We just don't know. And but we now, Adam Schiff, who's taking over the House Intelligence Committee, Maxine Waters, taking over the House Financial Services Committee, have both uh, talked about wanting to investigate the Deutsche Bank money. So you have the Southern District of New York, perhaps looking. Trump organization. You have members of Congress looking at Deutsche Bank loan. You have the attorney general of the state of New York and maybe the Manhattan DA looking at the Trump Foundation, which clearly has done things that look illegal. And you have them looking perhaps at other Trump organization activity. So there are just a lot of investigations now, you know, a lot of hammers up in the air that may start to fall you know, that involve Trump, his family, his businesses, his foundation. Uh, I think the coming year is going to be very difficult for anyone whose last name is Trump or perhaps even Kushner. Does he survive this? Well, you know, Trump is indeed a survivor. I mean, I, if you just look at his at his diet, and the fact that he doesn't <laughs> seem to sleep, it's pretty amazing that he's still walking, right? Right. So, and, and he's still, you know, and his, you know, he's turned the Republican Party into a cult of personality where no matter what he does, it doesn't matter. No matter what people, what reports come out of him from, from journal, journalists like me or others, or even from Congress or from a special prosecutor or, 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 or a, you know, uh, U.S. attorney doesn't seem to sway the 30 percent or so of the population that behind him no matter what so i mean i don't see republicans on here in washington on the hill turning against him thus he seems to be protected at this moment from any real impeachment proceedings it may well be that the u.s attorneys out there and Mueller accept the justice department 
uh, finding from years ago that a president can't be indicted, not while he's in office, at least. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Trump, you know, if the Diet Coke, Coke doesn't get him, may still be in office for the next few years and be able to run for re-election. And, you know, I would never discount, you know, the, the chances of him winning re-election. Uh, at the same time, there are people around him who don't have the same protection that he has as president. Um, we have House Democrats have already basically said that they believe Don Jr. Uh, lied when he testified behind closed doors to the House Intelligence Committee. Now, we saw Mueller prosecutes Michael Cohen for lying to Congress. Does that mean he's going to be looking at other instances of lying to Congress to prosecute? So is Don Jr. going to be in the line of fire? Um, will, will Trump's family because of the Trump Foundation? And there was that massive New York Times story uh, about two months ago um, on how the Trump family historically based, committed fraud. This was the New York Times right. word. That's right. To, you know, to evade paying hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes. Now, the statute of limitations has passed for criminally, you know, going after anyone on this. But New York State regulators, the U.S. Attorney, uh, excuse me, the, the, the Attorney General of New York State and others can go back and look at that and might be in a position to assess hundreds of millions of dollars in fines. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be something? And that also demonstrates a decades-long pattern of trying to skirt the system and take advantage of things and, and engaging in unscrupulous business practices, which just yeah. bolsters the case that Trump is um, a terrible person, like the acting chief of staff coming in, Mick Mulvaney, said at one point. Um, David, I appreciate your time. I know you have a hard out. Uh, David's book, Russian Roulette, The Inside Story of Putin's War in America and the Election of Donald Trump, he wrote it with an, another an excellent investigative reporter Michael Isakoff. I suggest you guys read it. Um, you'll be blown away at all of the the tentacles and ties of Trump and Russia and how that applies to what's going on now. Um, David Korn, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you so much. Keep up the great work. All right, I appreciated David Korn t- talking about that. It, you got to pick up his book. I mean, it's a little... I don't want to say depressing, but it's a little, um, you're, you're kind of taken aback when you, when you see it all laid out the way that he does in his book about all of Trump's relationships with Russia and what Putin's doing. It's, uh, it's a bit scary, but it puts things in perspective. It really does. And I don't think enough of it was reported during the election. Um, you know, Mike, uh, David Korn makes a point about how, we didn't get to this in the, in the interview, but he talks about a failure on the part of the mainstream media during the election, like the New York Times and others, for really not hammering this home. Trump's connections with Russia and a lot of his his questionable, unscrupulous business practices. And even there was even, you know, headlines that kind of poo-pooed, downplayed Trump, the Trump-Russia connection, while there was a lot more stories written about Hillary Clinton, her email scandal. Not saying that that didn't warrant attention. It did. But just imagine how, whether, I don't know, what effect it would have had if the media had focused more on Donald Trump's questionable business practices and his relationship with Russia. Donald Trump only won by 77,000 votes in three states combined in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Think about that. 77,000 votes. 
there are football stadiums that hold more people. If I go to a Giants game, there are more people in that arena than the different the margin for Trump's win. So, who knows what kind of influence it had. But uh, I want to do at least switch gears a little bit, talk about something good. Criminal justice reform is an issue that is important to me, and it's in, it's been a bipartisan, a growing bipartisan issue over the last couple of years, because they're realizing that the war on drugs and things wasn't working, and the for some states, the cost of incar- incarcerating people was just through the roof. It was breaking budgets. Places like California had overcrowding. They had to figure, what the hell are we going to do? And so places like California and Texas and others were leading the way in trying to reform um, who goes to jail and trying to stop recidivism or dramatically reduce it. And so criminal justice reform was born. There were a lot of aspects to it. But I was introduced to this issue because when I worked in Congress, I, um, in addition to being a communications director, I worked on some policy issues, which is very unusual, by the way. But I, was, I had interest in policy, and so um, I was able to work on border security, immigration, and immigration, national law enforcement stuff. And I was an advocate. They called me the Aaron Brockovich of the case, advocating for two Border Patrol agents, Agents Ramos and Compion, down in Texas. They ended up getting sentenced to 11 and 12 years in prison for shooting an illegal alien drug smuggler while he was crossing the border after he left behind a million dollars worth of drugs and made a run for it. He assaulted one of the officers. The other officer shot at him, didn't know that he hit him. He struck him in the ass, actually. But the guy kept running to a van waiting for him on the Mexican side. Now, that's a part of the border that needs a damn fence, by the way. I was down in the field in the levee where this incident took place, and it's near El Paso, Texas. There was no fence there. There's like a field, a little bit of a levee, little water and then like Mexico's on the other side it's crazy now I was down there a couple years ago I don't think there's any fencing still there in that part but um that kind of stuff happened all the time but they ended up getting prosecuted and for um, not properly reporting the shooting despite the fact all their supervisors knew our government went in and and found the 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 drug smuggler gave him immunity to testify against the agents it was a an outrageous case and because of mandatory minimum sentencing, these agents were, were um, sentenced to 11 and 12 years in prison because they were brought up on a gun charge. Um, the gun statute is called 924C. It's the unlawful discharge of a firearm during a crime of violence. Now, that statute was passed 40 years ago, supposedly as a deterrent for like drug smugglers and people like that from using weapons. So if you got caught with a gun, it tacked on mandatory minimum sentencing. It was supposed to be a deterrent. So if you brandish a gun, it's, f- it's five years. If you carry a gun, it's five. Brandish it, it's seven. If you use it, it's 10, mandatory minimum. Well, the agents were charged under the statute, which was never intended to be used for law enforcement because law enforcement, they're allowed to carry a gun and you have to use your gun in deadly force situations. So why would the unlawful discharge of a firearm be apl- applied to law enforcement in the course of their everyday duties. So it was just a tactic by the U.S. Attorney's Office down there to get them to plea. They said no, they went to trial, and they lost. 
but the trial was a mess and the whole thing was a mess they didn't they were unjustly prosecuted never should have gone that far and anyway to make a long story short that is what introduced me to the federal criminal justice system the board of the the bureau of prisons and just kind of how all of that unsavory world worked and i was really shocked by what i saw just a lot of the inhumanity now i'm not talking about you know hardened criminals that are sexual predators or child you know molesters and murderers but you know but not those people but for others um that uh, aren't violent criminals necessarily it's just it's not it's messed up it is this part of the criminal justice system is fucked up and i'm glad to see that both republicans and democrats are recognizing that we need to do some things and change them so the first step act which is going before the senate now is um an entree into that and it's actually a huge accomplishment i'm no fan of jared kushner at all i don't think he belongs in the white house i think it's nepotism and i think you know he comes from a crooked family my friend van jones <laughs> i didn't want to say that to him but during our interview he's very complimentary of jared kushner because he has been pushing for this issue well sure his own father went to federal prison he deserved to go there but you know and chris christie's the one who prosecuted him but you can google what happened with charles kushner and why he went to prison but so this is an issue that's that that's important to jared kushner because he personally experienced it and you know van jones has a heart for people you know he's a social justice warrior i don't agree with him on on some policy we come from opposite ideological perspectives but there's a lot of common ground that we do have because we're both solution oriented and we care for people so um he's been working really hard on this and um and we've become friends as a result of working together at cnn over the years and um and uh, van is one of the nicest guys he's very really charming really authentic and um, he has done great work working with multiple sides on trying to get something comprehensive in front of the Congress. And the First Step Act is that product. And the Senate's getting ready to vote on it this week. So I felt it was important to actually hear about something good that's being accomplished um, and to talk about that. So I'm very happy to welcome Van Jones, the one and only, uh, to Honestly Speaking with Tara this week to talk about more about criminal justice reform and um, what's going on with the bill and how we got there. Dan, thank you for joining me. We're going to talk some criminal justice reform. Yay. I'm, I'm, I can't tell you how happy I am to be talking about something positive and something bipartisan and something that's going to help the people who are at the very, very bottom and need the most help. Absolutely. And it's, um, you know, it's a breath of fresh air to finally have something as consequential as criminal justice reform actually have a legitimate chance of passing and changing so many people's lives. And, and it's an issue yeah. that I think people for years just took for granted. And I know for me as a Republican, you know, I, I come from a law enforcement family. You know, I was a tough on crime Republican. And my entire view of the criminal justice system changed when I worked in Congress and I advocated for two Border Patrol agents who were, in my opinion, unjustly prosecuted and sent to prison for 11 and 12 years. And that introduced me to the federal criminal justice system, mandatory minimums, the Bureau of Prisons, and all of the horrors that go along with that. So um, yep. 
I'm one of those people that completely did a 180 on this issue, and um, uh, so I'm I'm well, glad. And you're, not, to, and you're not by yourself, right? That's right. I, mean, I tell you, the, the conservative. Listen, this is an issue that offends the core values of both political parties. Once people have the facts about what's going on, look, I'm a strong Democrat, as you know. Uh, we like the idea of just uh, of justice, you know, social justice, making sure little people don't get run over by big people. God bless us. But the Republicans, at their best, advocate the idea of liberty, which is limited government, respect for individual rights, individual dignity, fiscal conservatism, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Well, th there is no more anti-justice or anti-liberty institution in our country than what we have allowed the prison system to become. Uh, it is gobbling up liberties. It's gobbling up rights. It's, it's violating dignity. And it's gobbling up tons of money, and it's making things worse, not better. And finally, both parties, for different reasons, have come to the same conclusion that this is a, an aspect of government that really needs reform. And frank, frankly, uh, as embarrassing as, as it is, the people who have led this fight have been Republican governors like Rick Perry in Texas, like Governor Deal in uh, Georgia, um, you know, some of the stuff that's happened in, in Ohio, even Mississippi, where Republican governors have said, we are not going to keep paying for a big failed government bureaucracy to eat up money and liberties and rights and, and do a horrible job. And the, all those governors have been able to close prisons and bring the crime rate down because it turns out when you have too many people in prison, people who really shouldn't be there wind up coming home bitter and not better, and they become a part of your problem and you create a cycle. And yep. so now both parties can work together. And, you know, and it's interesting, like you said, Republicans started to reexamine this issue, probably for a different reason, not necessarily the social justice part of it, but the fiscal part of it. And I kind of feel like I don't care why, as long as it gets fixed, <laughs> you know, places yeah. like Texas. I think for a lot of listeners, people don't realize, you know, you think of Texas as, you know, Texas justice and, you know, they're hard asses when it comes to this. But Texas was actually one of the states leading the way in this reform, um, even with yep. with uh, instituting programs that are are uh, with education and teaching entrepreneurial skills to stop prisoners from reoffending. And they started this in order to save money. And mm -hmm. it's blossomed into other pilot programs in places like California, which deals with overcrowding. And, you know, usually these kinds of reforms come out of necessity. And it just this is one of those issues where both progressives and conservatives can come to an agreement that it, there is also a human aspect to this. Why would we not want to do something that makes people better? So let's talk a little bit about what's in the First Step Act, which is what's coming before the Senate this week. Um, and we had a little tough time getting Mitch McConnell to bring it to the floor, but it looks like he's mm -hmm. going to finally do that. So what's in this that's so important that changes things? The most important thing is that it clarifies what is the purpose of the federal prison system. Is it just to warehouse people and, and, and make them you know, worse? Or if you're going to have people in custody and you're going to spend this much money on them, should you be sending people home job ready and transformed? And it makes it very clear that the purpose of the prison is to send people home job ready, transformed. And then what it does in particular, it says to all 100,000 people in our federal prisons, if you just stay out of trouble, if you just get away from these gangs and all this nonsense, you will be able to come home a little bit sooner. Um, so you give them some carrots to the prison authorities, not just sticks. Mm -hmm. And then for about half of them who are, you know, are not in there for the worst of the worst offenses, it says beyond that, if you take these classes and you work hard and you, you pass them and you're, you're getting skills and that can be certified, you can come home a little bit sooner 
not fully free, but in a halfway house with an ankle bracelet, some kind of community supervision. But you'll be able to hug your, your daughter when she goes to the prom. You'll be able to go to your mom's funeral. You'll, you, will, you will be able, by coming home job ready, you can gain a way home a little bit earlier. Now, you think that's no big deal. That's everything. Sure, absolutely. And, and that's considered, that's and, called the time credit program, right? Exactly. So, yeah, you can, so you, can earn, you can earn your way home a little bit earlier. And that now you're giving real carrots to our prison authorities. It's not just sticks. We'll put you in solitary confinement if you're bad. We're going to actually uh, reward you if you do good. And so now you've totally changed the dynamic. Now, on top of that, now that, but that by itself would be enough for me. Sure. But on top of that, um, there's some sentencing things that just never made any sense. They, they, they're going to go back and fix. Like, for instance, crack cocaine and powder cocaine are the same thing pharmacologically. One just has baking soda in it. Mm-hmm. But if you were convicted under the old Bill Clinton Crime Act, uh, you would get 100 times more punishment for crack versus powder cocaine, which meant droves and droves of African Americans were put in prison for a long period of time. Obama, working with Congress, brought that down to 18 to 1, but the problem is it wasn't retroactive. So you have people sitting there who now, you know, for decades, who would have been home under the new laws. This will fix some of that. So some of these model prisoners uh, who you know, haven't picked up more charges, who've just been sitting there, uh, will get a chance to, to come home and, and get their lives going uh, because, you know, it was, these were unjust, outdated laws that everybody recognizes. So, the, so, so some of those things are very exciting to, you know, to, to, uh, criminal justice wonks like myself. Right. But just the, but the, the, the other thing, so wait, just to, clarif- just to clarify, so th- yeah. that is mandatory minimum sentencing reform for these certain drug crimes. Yeah, there was yeah. a desperate the, the, there was a disparate impact on especially the African-American community because black, you know, black men were more likely to get, go to jail for selling crack cocaine as opposed to powdered the, cocaine, which is a little bit more of a white collar crime. And so it had a it had a pretty significant uh, difference of an impact when it comes to, you know, putting black men in jail. Let's just be real about it. Right. It, it, Exactly. And I think looking back, people feel kind of bad about it, especially when you look at the opioid crisis and you realize, right. that, wait a minute, when you take the drug, when you take the jobs away, people go into despair and drug use. The first jobs went away and the, that first big wave of deindustrialization uh, hit a lot of black communities you're talking about Detroit, you're talking about Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And we went into despair and we went into drugs. But then they locked all of us up for like, you know, way, way long. Now that it's hitting other communities, people say, wait a minute. Maybe we shouldn't, you know, put all these white guys who used to work for, for factories, you know, in prison for 50 years. Maybe we should help them with their addiction. And that then lets you go and say, well, shouldn't we be doing that for, the, for everybody? And so it's just naturally the conversation has become more compassionate yes. and frankly, just more common sense and smart. Right. And so we so, so the, I'm gonna, I mean, I could talk to you for five hours. But what I want you to know is that even in the middle of this, what feels like a civil war, where an, an uncivil war, mm. where people just can't agree, won't listen, things in the ear, everybody yelling at each other. Somehow, on this issue, which affects the least of these, what the Bible calls the least of these, the people who are addicted, the people who are convicted, the people who've been thrown away, somehow a miracle is happening where those are the people that everyone is coming to the aid of. And there is no super PAC, there is no billionaire writing a check. There is no war room with a bunch of fancy, you know, pollsters and, you know, we got to buy right. you know, these Google ads. None of that. It's, this is, I've never seen anything like this. This is just people who give a dadgum, people like Jared Kushner, 
who I fight on every issue, but on this issue, you know, his daddy went to prison, his father went to prison. Courtesy he of Chris Christie, yes. Courtesy of Chris <laughs> Christie. So he understands this in a different way. Mm-hmm. And you have, you know, David, David Safavian at American Conservative Union. He went to prison for two, a year and a half on some bogus white-collar mm-hmm. nonsense. And he fights hard. And then on the left, you have Jessica Jackson uh, uh, and uh, Lewis Reed and Topeka Sam working for Cut 50. That's my, my organization, the Cut 50 campaign. All of them either went to prison or had a loved one go to prison on some nonsense. And they said, you know what? This is wrong. And so even though no big super PAC, no big donor, no big money, no war room, just individual people refusing to give up and walk in the halls of Congress and literally begging people and telling their personal stories, democracy started to work in the least likely place. And it wore down Mitch McConnell and it isolated um, Tom Cotton, and it won over Donald Trump. Give Donald Trump some credit. He could have come out from the beginning and said, this is all just a bunch of soft-headed nonsense, and it would have been over. But Donald Trump listened to Jared, he listened to others, and he, and he listened to the governor of Mississippi and other people who've taken this on and done a good job, and he said, you know what? I'm going to take this on. And the, what, what moved Donald Trump was when one of his aides told him, you said you were for the forgotten man mm-hmm. and the forgotten woman, Nobody's more forgotten than people in prison. They deserve a second chance, and it, and, and it moved him. Now, listen, I, I got 99 conflicts with the Trump administration, but prisons ain't one right. on this issue, okay? <laughs> that, I mean, that's, that's keeping issue. it so 100, Van, because a lot of us obviously yeah. have a lot of issues with the Trump administration and Trump himself, yeah. but this has been the um, rare shining light. Yeah, and, and I think it's okay for us to say that, uh, you know, whether you're talking about the Opportunity Zone stuff that Tim Scott fought for and got put into legislation to try to help poor people, or whether you're talking about criminal justice reform, or whether you're talking about some of the stuff they're doing on opioids. Those are three things that all Americans can work together on and be proud of. Now, there's 97 other issues that I, you know, we'll fight till, till, till the cows come home over. Mm-hmm. But let us not be what we claim other people are. Uh, you know, the other people are in a bubble. Other people. No, 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 no. Everybody in America has a responsibility to work together where we can. We should fight hard where we can. That's democracy. In democracy, you're supposed to just, when you disagree, you're supposed to speak up. Right. But in democracy, where you do agree, you're supposed to step up. And here's something where we agree. I'm proud to have worked on this. I'm going to work, with, I, I, and I've become very good friends with Jared Kushner. I'm going to do, do everything I can in 2020 to make sure he has a different job. But I appreciate <laughs> yeah, you and me what both. he's done on this issue. <laughs> but I appreciate well, what he's done on this issue. But you know what's so important, though, about what you said when you mentioned that there was no big money pack or a billionaire writing a mm-hmm. check behind this effort? I think it's encouraging for my listeners to know that you can make a difference if you yes, get you involved. It's something that I, yes, that I advocate for all the time because people often ask me what, well, what can I do? You know, there's all this money in politics and it's so corrupt. What I have, you know, I, I can't make a difference. And I tell people all the time, absolutely. Yes, you can. And this is one mm-hmm. of those examples where communities and individual stories, like you said, getting the attention of people, moved the it's moving legislation and um there was something i cut you off but you started to say something else that was in the act was uh, had to do with women and i think that's a forgotten aspect of the federal system Mm -hmm. is how women are impacted by this where you know that women couldn't get simple things like you know feminine um products and things like that Mm -hmm. and and i know when i could like i said when i was working with the border agents it literally took me as you with the with the power of the congressional office behind me to get one of my border agents um chapstick 
in sneakers. So I can only imagine. But talk a little bit about how this impacts women prisoners. I think people are not aware that the female part of the prison population is growing exponentially. Um, and, uh, and a lot of it has to do with the way that prosecutors deal with, with drug conspiracy stuff. Unfortunately, let me just, just tell this because a lot of people who don't deal with this just have never thought about this. But, you know, often somebody is, is dating someone and they're maybe a little bit of a bad boy, but, you know, they're, they're cute and they dance good or whatever. They got a nice car. <laughs> and then, you know, you know, it's cook, Cookie sudden, and Lucius, right? Cookie and Lucius, like exactly, Empire. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. And so uh, but then suddenly uh, the, you know, the, the, the boyfriend gets arrested and uh, in order for the boyfriend to get out of trouble, the boyfriend's got a snitch on whoever. And a lot of times the boyfriend will throw the girlfriend, which turns out to be one of many girlfriends under the bus and say, well, I was keeping all my stuff at her house or she was driving me here or there. And then often the girlfriend will be like, well, A, I didn't do it. And B, I love him. And I don't know what's happening here. And, I get, and she's not as sophisticated and she won't take a plea. And then she winds up doing, you know, 30 or 40 right. years. Hard time. And the boyfriend, part, you know, 30 or 40 years hard time for a massive drug conspiracy. Whereas the actual you know, boyfriend who was involved will sometimes walk or get two years. This happens all the time. And as a result, you have massive numbers of women going to prison. You think, well, nobody would fall for this. Trust me. A lot of people, young yes. people, fall for stuff like this yeah, all the you're time. Right. You're right. And, and, so, and so what happens is um, now they're in there, and the federal system was not designed for this mushrooming female population. And they are you know, they're shackled when they um, give birth to babies. Why that became a policy, I have no idea. This, the First Step Act will fix that, stop that. They are it's, when they're pregnant, they're put in solitary confinement, which the UN calls torture, and that you know, just all kinds of things that just don't make sense um, because the federal prison system is just not really designed for this many women. Mm -hmm. And so this First Step Act has a dignity for incarcerated women component, um, which is a bill that's passed in a, uh, the Cut Fifty, the Cut Fifty dot org organization, which I'm a part of, has passed similar legislation in, in um, eight states this year to try to protect women. There are so many things in this bill, but what I just want people to know is they can go, you can go to firststepact.org and you can learn a lot about it. But the most important thing is I, as we go to work, we got a Christmas miracle coming yes. where, where help is coming to people who haven't had help for a long time under the Trump administration because people put politics to one side in both parties and said, we're going to put people first. We're going to keep both parties healthy on this issue. We're not going to have this issue become like, you know, guns or immigration or climate change or whatever, where nothing can get done. We're going to keep both parties healthy. And rather than Donald Trump being, you know, left out there, people like myself went and Topeka Sam, a formerly incarcerated black woman and others went into the White House and sat down and talked with people and said, listen, this is important. And, and, and we, they, those personal stories made such a difference. Now, there's some issues that you can't do that on. I understand. Right. But just take, say, take yes for an answer from the universe one time <laughs> when something good happens. Right. And right. let's celebrate. Well, you know, don't have to make everything so cynical. Right. You know, let's right. celebrate one thing and then we'll go fight next year. But exactly. Let this, let this Christmas miracle happen. Well, and, and, you know, the support from on the Democratic side, you had Dick Durbin and, and Cory Booker, who were really vocal in pushing this. But more importantly, on the Republican side, since they control the Senate and will continue to, it's been Grassley 
and Cornyn, who um, I think most people wouldn't expect, you know, Chuck Grassley being Never the chairman that. of the Judiciary Committee, you know, he's a little bit of a curmudgeon, but he's a good guy. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah. John Cornyn, who I actually worked with on the border agent issue, and, and uh, but he's a total law, law and order guy. I mean, he was the AG of Texas, and he was a Supreme Court justice in Texas, and he was on board with these reforms. Yeah. And I think that when you see it coming from people like that, it makes it okay, at least on the Republican side, you don't look yeah. weak. It's not about being weak in law and order it's not being about you know you're not letting criminals out on the street um just mm-hmm. in the couple minutes we have left just to play the other side some of the criticism about this bill mm-hmm. coming from senator cotton and, and senator kennedy uh they were complaining that um some of the the offenses that were not that that were included that were eligible i guess for this time credit mm-hmm. program where you can earn your way out a little early that it still included the way it is written now that it still included some um sexual felon sexual offenses and some violent felonies and they want to introduce amendments to kind of fix that um, do, um is it, that true or you it, know, what's it, your response to that? no he's it's just grandstanding. The, the, the stuff that they're pointing to is actually totally handled in other parts of the bill. Um, I mean, do you think Donald Trump, the national uh, 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 police organizations, the national uh, with the National Association of Manufacturers, that all these groups going to sign off on a bill like that? That's just he. Listen, he is wearing a velour bell-bottom suit. He is so out of date <laughs> with his rhetoric and calling his on a, calling it on a payphone. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. He's calling, he's calling in on a payphone wearing a bell-bottom velour suit with that stuff. He's just trying to fearmonger and, you know, uh, I do things so he can get a victory because he got destroyed. He he was a rising star in the Republican Party. Senator but, Cotton. You know, when, when you, Senator Cotton, yeah. he was a rising star in the Republican Party. But when you, when you try to out-right-wing Donald Trump and out-right-wing the cops and out-right, like at a certain point, people look at you and say, maybe you're just about yourself. Because there's no way in hell that Donald Trump or any of the people who've signed on to this bill um, would be, you know, would be putting forward a bill as flawed as he says it is. Right. And there, there's so many safeguards in this bill already that it's just grandstanding and it's sad. Um, but I will say one thing, which is that um, at some point we have to start saying that people like Tom Cotton are pro-crime. Pro-crime because the status quo is pro-crime. The reformers, we're the anti-crime people. I want, but I want folks because I got to deal with them. I want folks when they go into prison to come home better and not better. I want them to have the incentives to stop acting bad, which is the sticks. But I also want them to have some incentives to start acting good because 95% of these people are coming home and they're coming back to communities that look more like mine than Tom Cotton's. And I want them coming home ready to hit the ground working, taking care of their kids, right. getting jobs, starting businesses. And he is doing everything he can to prevent that from happening. So that's a he has he's a pro crime. He's not tough on crime. He is pro crime because he's pro the status quo, which has too much crime. And the, I think that's just like you said, an old school way of thinking. And mm-hmm. um, that uh, it's so we it's, tried the experiment, right? We tried that. That's right. I mean, that was with that was the 1994 crime bill passed under Clinton, and it 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 didn't it worked in some areas, and it didn't work in a lot of other areas, and. Um, one of the areas that the First Step Act has that I think has not been underreported, but it's important, is the $250 million um, for over five years for training and education. And yeah. um, I, I'm a, a 
a leadership fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and um, Gerard. Yeah, I love them. AEI is such an, a great think tank. AEI.org for folks who want to go check out some of their p- issue papers. They're one of the smartest, uh, more on the right. So it's a right-leaning conservative mm-hmm. think tank. Um, but Gerard mm-hmm. Robinson over there has been a leading advocate in this area. And, um, you know, he's been uh, – you've worked with Gerard, right? On this, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, well. yeah, and he's one that's a huge proponent uh, about these training and education programs. And like I mentioned earlier, states like Texas started implementing these. These were not taxpayer dollars; it was actually private money coming in as an experiment, where it just lowered the recidivism recidivism rates in ways that were um, amazing. And so, the fact that there's money behind this now, that this will actually save taxpayer money because there are direct correlations between the level of education and skills and recidivism. The more education you have, the more skills you have, the less likely you are to reoffend. And isn't that, that's to your point, isn't that what we want? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's what we want. And then, and then you have Tom Cotton who comes in and says, well, you know, you, you know, you know, this person can't be eligible and that person can't be eligible. And some of the people he's saying shouldn't be eligible is name one of the main people you want right. to come home with some skills. Right. So I don't know some what kind of skill. About, right. But, exactly. We're not yeah, talking about giving out a free skill. college. You know, you know, you're a prisoner. And yeah. you, you go to jail, you get a free college education, but just some basic yeah. skills. So when you come out, you can yeah. actually work and contribute to society and have some sense of yeah. dignity, which is important. Too. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And look, I just I just want to say I, I appreciate you so much. You know, you're a principled conservative. You know, you and I don't agree on everything, but we do agree that politics is about the constructive debate, constructive disagreement to actually solve real problems and not just destructive posturing and and name calling and nonsense to try to drive up ratings or or get your get your base all whipped up. Most people would just like to know how we fix this stuff. And I'm going to tell you one thing and I'll let you go. Because I know I can't talk to you forever as much as I want to. <laughs> yeah, I could keep uh, you forever. You're the busy guy. You're out there. You know, I appreciate you taking time today to do it because I know you're out there. You're but, passionate about this. But, but go ahead. But let me just tell you. Let me tell you what, I, what I've learned because I've, I've worked with people. I know, you know, Jared Kushner tried to get me fired from CNN when, he, when they first came in. Oh, uh, I know. Uh, Mike, Mike, Mike Pence, when, when I was working for Obama, tried to get me fired from, from working for Obama. The Koch brothers gave money to the Americans for Prosperity to try to get me out of the White House and succeeded. So – who am I working with arm in arm? Jared Kushner, Mike Pence, and, and Mark Holden from Coke Industries. Why? Because the needs of ordinary people who are suffering are more important than any of this political nonsense, even if it's personal. People say it's not, it's not, uh, it's only politics, it's not personal. Well, for me, even when it was personal. And All I right. still say, I still say, you got to put the needs of ordinary people first. And the biggest problem we have in America is not that we have too many mean and dumb people. In doing mean and dumb stuff. We'd have that in both parties. The biggest problem in America, we have too many amazing people who just don't know what to do and don't know how to find each other and don't know how to help each other in both parties and of all races. And if we can put the, 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 this addiction crisis and this you know, people going to jail crisis and these kids too poor with no chance crisis ahead of everything else, all the amazing people in both parties can find each other again and we can work on those issues and things will get better and better. So this is the first step, not just on prison reform. It's the first step out of this whole nonsense where good people have to hate each other because of who we voted for as opposed to working together. So I just appreciate this. I'm passionate about it. I've seen the beauty in the Republican Party in a way that I, that, that's hard to see if you just look at this, all this, this Trump, Trump, Trump stuff on TV. I've looked in the eyes of Republicans who were crying more than me about what's happening to people behind bars and have taken real risks 
politically when it wasn't popular six months ago to make this happen. And I'm going to spread the word about it. We can do a lot better. Van, thank you so much. That was beautifully stated and uh, important for people to hear that even you persecuted by people for being um, having a difference of a political viewpoint, you are now working in hand in hand with them to have an impact on other people's lives. And uh, I appreciate you for, for taking the um, taking that, such an effort and making this a big part of, of your platform. Um, and I and yeah. I appreciate that we get to work together at CNN. Let's and, stay and, that's right. And on this issue in any way I can continue to be helpful, you just let me know. So Van well, Jones, well, you have thank been, you. You have been and you will be. Happy holidays. Please. Same to you. Thank you, Van. So um, as I close this, this year's episode um, of Honestly speaking, the last episode of 2018, I had to get a really good feel-good story. And of course, it's a Christmas-themed story. And it's about um, Gold Star families and actor Gary Sinise. Gary Sinise, you probably know him most famously as Lieutenant Dan from Forrest Gump, one of my favorite movies in the whole world. And he, ever since that role, he has been really involved with taking care of veterans and families. He started the Gary Sinise Foundation. He has a band called the Lieutenant Dan Band too, so he performs and stuff. But his Gary Sinise Foundation has done a lot of charity work for military families, particularly Gold Star families. And Gold Star families are the ones who've lost uh, a family member in, um, in, in the military. So, um, you know, a dad, a mom, a husband or wife, you know, so it's people who have who's a fam, who family whose family member has paid the ultimate sacrifice, and a lot of times, you know, these these folks they leave behind spouses and children, and it's not easy. You know, it's it's tough, but uh, but they're they're family members, they're heroes, and I think there's never enough that we can do for them, given the sacrifices they make for our, for our freedom in our country. So Gary Sinise. Every year, he has something called the Snowball Express Program, which I think is awesome. And the Snowball Express Program basically sets up trips for for the Gold Star children, accompanied by a parent, obviously. And this year, the trip was to Disney World, which is the happiest place on earth. I love Disney World. Even as an adult, I skip around. I love Disney World. And... The Gary Sinise Foundation flew 1,700 Gold Star kids and their parents or parent to Disney World for a five-day all-expense-paid trip. They chartered planes. I think it was 15 planes they either chartered or they bought the seats for on the plane from across the country to fly these kids into Orlando for an amazing vacation. Um... One of the locations, I think, was Nashville, and the kids and their and their parent were greeted with fellow passengers singing the national anthem as they got on the plane. That's just amazing, and I just think it's what a wonderful, wonderful gesture of kindness. And Gary Sinise said the most important part about doing this type of work for these children is that they don't feel alone. He does it so that they are able to forge friendships and relationships with other kids who have suffered through the same tragedy. 
They can bond together and have lifetime friendships knowing that they aren't going through that experience by themselves. And I think that is wonderful and good for them. So that's the Gary Sinise Foundation. They took these kids to the greatest, greatest, happiest place on earth, Disney World. And I think that's just amazing. So in that, in the spirit of giving and kindness, I want to wish everyone happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and a wonderful and blessed Happy New Year. And here's to a successful and blessed, happy, healthy 2019. Thank you for everyone who's been listening and supporting Honestly Speaking with Tara. Please continue to listen. I appreciate everyone taking time out to listen to me. And um, there's more to come in 2019. Be sure to keep tweeting at me, at Tara Setmayer, or at Honestly underscore Tara on Twitter, at the Tara Setmayer on Instagram. And wishing everyone a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and a Happy New Year. See you in January. <laughs>